This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our focus, contemporary spirituality. And our guest today, Jorge Ferreira. Uh, he is a, a professor of East-West Psychology, uh, Integral and Transpersonal Psychology at the uh, School of Consciousness and Transformation. He's at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Uh, I want to let our listeners know that uh, I'm in Iowa. My co-host, Phil Goldberg, is in Los Angeles. And Jorge is in the beautiful city of uh, Barcelona. And uh, he's in an ancient monastery. So if you hear <laughs> like an echo chamber, he's in the cell of a famous monk. That, that's actually not true. Uh, but it may sound a little like that. But I think it's still miraculous that uh, we, the three of us can have a conversation uh, in three different parts of the world many thousands of miles away from each other. Jorge, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to, to be here. And uh, likewise, it's amazing that we can have this conversation this morning. <laughs> it is an echo chamber. Um, Jorge, perhaps for the sake of our listeners who are not familiar with you and your work, um, Give us a little bit about your background. You've become uh, an important figure in transpersonal psychology, uh, but you were born in Spain and ended up in San Francisco. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your own spiritual history and what got you into transpersonal psychology. Yes, I think like um, my interest into spirituality and differences of consciousness um, started with a number of different experiences I underwent when I was like a little boy and also pre-adolescent. Uh, when I was in a school, uh, maybe I would be like 10 or 11 years old, uh, I would go into some kind of like trance-like states in the classroom. I would be in a place of uh, light and peace. And uh, the teacher would wake me up and I would cry. Um, and uh, they thought I was epileptic. Uh, they would turn me to the psychologist. They did some testing. They realized I was not epileptic. And, um, and that left like some kind of um, interest into a state of consciousness. I knew there was something there really beautiful. And, uh, and then uh, afterwards, uh, in my pre-adolescent, I started having spontaneous out-of-body experiences. And uh, I was very scared of them at first because uh, there was nothing that had prepared me for that experience of experiencing myself outside of my body and looking at my body from above. And uh, it took many years until I became more familiar with, with those experiences that I don't have very much these days, actually. So um, it was those experiences plus, plus my awareness already in my adolescence of... Um, you know, certain purely neurotic patterns and areas of myself that needed to be healed that took me into the study of psychology. And when I reached um, mainstream psychology in Barcelona, of course, I didn't, you know, I was looking for both healing and, and understanding of those states. And I, of course, I didn't receive none of them, you know. I didn't receive healing studying scientific psychology at the university and, I, and the understanding of those states was more a pathologizing one. Mm -hmm. They were called depersonalization, dissociative disorders, you know, and I knew that didn't, that didn't, that didn't match my experience. Right. So it took me a number of years, like looking uh, more 
self-directed study until I found through reading, you know, through Carl Gustav Jung and Eric Fromm and I found Zen Buddhism and I eventually found the discipline of transpersonal psychology. And there I was, there was like a field of, a subfield of psychology that had like a non-pathologi- non-pathological understanding of many of those states that really matched more my own experience. Right. And that was the beginning of, of my search into transpersonal psychology. Right. Jorge, uh, much of your life work and research uh, was uh, inspired by uh, your experiences uh, in the earlier part of your life, mostly, you said, uh, of these deep inner spiritual experiences that you didn't have. Uh, We recently interviewed a woman, uh, Kimberly Braun, uh, similar, had these uh, profound (laughs) spiritual experiences as a child. She wound up becoming a Carmelite nun and then moved on from there where she is uh, no longer in the monastery but teaches and Again, her life very much uh, directed because of these early experiences. In your teaching, in your research, have you encountered many people like yourself who at an early stage in life or some part of their life had these experiences that modern psychology, psychoanalysis, whatever, could not explain, so they had to uh, uh, seek other areas to understand their experience? Yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, I would say that 80% of all the students that arrived to CIS, they have had some kind of experiences. I mean, I would even argue that most, if not all children, you know, they do have some kind of experiences that would could be considered kind of a spiritual states, but they are not that late of repress or not remember, or uh, sometimes they are like framing ways that... Um, the same people, you know, they understand them differently, you know. Oh, that was like something that happened to me that day in nature, but, but you know, uh, it's not something that has not, nothing to do with what people are calling it spiritual, you know. So definitely I would say so. Um, Jorge, just for the sake of people who are not familiar with the field of transpersonal psychology, uh, maybe you could uh, give us a, just a brief sort of synopsis of, of what the uh, emphasis of that field of research is and how it came into being. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, the field was born in the late 60s and uh, it was born in, in California and uh, there was a place and a time in which there was like this very rich uh, confluence of many different uh, trends. And uh, I think that there were three that they were the most important for, for the birth of transpersonal psychology. One was the counterculture of the 60s, and uh, also uh, including uh, the tremendous exper- experimentation with psychedelic substances, LSD and uh, magic mushrooms and morning glory and many other things. That was happening there. And then at the same time, uh, there was also the... The entry, and you have documented um, field is beautiful in your book, American Veda. There was like tremendous influx of uh, Eastern uh, spiritual traditions in those years that started before, but it kind of peaked was picking up in the 60s and 70s. Eastern traditions were coming into, into the West. Uh, Eastern gurus were arriving to California. And then all that kind of uh, got together with um, uh, the field of uh, humanistic psychology, uh, the work of Han Maslow that was talking about, you know, not so much about what's wrong about the person, but what about a psychology that studies what is good about the person, 
what, what we can become, you know, the farther reaches of human nature, self-actualization, what we call peak experiences, the happiest, joyous moments, you know. So, so out of this kind of, um, you know, three-sided um, influx, uh, some psychologists started kind of like putting things together, you know. Many people, for example, uh, have had quite dramatically spiritual experiences, uh, differences of consciousness during psychedelics, when they start reading like uh, Eastern traditions, descriptions of different states like Nirvana or Moksha, you know, and uh, Satori in, in the literature, you know, they start really finding parallels, you know, um, and that's one of that correspondence between the, the descriptions in the Eastern traditions uh, and uh, some of the experiences that people were having with psychedelics in the 60s and 70s, that was like a very important source of the field, you know. Mm -hmm. So the field uh, devoted itself for many decades now to to the study of uh, states of consciousness, the states of being that go beyond our conventional development, you know, for more mainstream psychology to become a mature, um, a functional egoic personality is, the, is, you know, is what is the top, you know, although now there is the field of positive psychology, right. but, uh, but uh, until a few years ago, you know, there was nothing more, you know, uh, it was Freud who said, uh, you know, the more, we, the more we can do is to substitute the tremendous misery of the neurotic for the everyday unhappiness of everyday life, right? Right, right. So, yeah, Jorge, let me ask you, uh, you're, you're touching upon the subject now of uh, doing things, uh, external <laughs> or internal, to uh, bring on these uh, experiences, and, and you are a leading scholar on transformative <laughs> practices. What are some of the transformative practices that you have used or currently used that you find effective and are these things you can teach other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's a tricky question. I, 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 because uh, my sense, uh, I, I, I'm happy to share a bit about my trajectory in that regard, but I'm, I'm always hesitant because my sense that it's important for people to really find their own practices, you know, the practices that resonate with their own potentials. Um, I take the view that um, uh, I defend this notion that I call a spiritual individuation. Uh, you know, normally people talk about psychological individuation, but spiritual individuation is like, you know, the capability to become your own unique embodiment of the mystery or reality or the divine, whatever you want, you want to call it. And the path can be drastically different from many different people. I'm always very uh, struck and astonished, you know, when I hear about the tremendous diversity of spiritual trajectories, you know. Some people went from being a Christian monk and then they went into Buddhism. Other people went from Buddhism to shamanism and to environmental spirituality and so forth, you know. So for me, what matters is not so much the specific practices themselves, but the, the, the cash fruits, you know. Um, are they making you uh, more available, uh, kinder human being? Are you becoming a more integrated uh, person, less dissociations, less blocks within your being? Are you becoming a more active, uh, transformative agent in the world towards making this place a more eco-socially and political just and fair? For everybody, you know, but uh, in regard to, to my path, what I would say is that uh, from, uh, uh, you know, I was educated in Barcelona in a Christian school, and uh, as many people of my generation uh, who were educated in Christianity, we rejected Christianity, 
and I went into um, first Buddhism, uh, different forms of Zen, uh, they were very important, uh, then also Vipassana. I was in the Buddhist world for about 15 years, and at the same time I was doing a lot of um, explorations into shamanism and also uh, work with teacher plants such as ayahuasca. Uh, at some point I found uh, the cactus San Pedro in Peru, and actually I became a San Pedrista, although not that many people know about it. In my book, for the first time I came out of the closet in that way, sharing some of my own infidelic mm-hmm. experiences with San Pedro, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at the same time, the last thing I will say, I don't want to talk too much, and the last thing I will say is uh, uh, there is this body of word that I talk about it in the book, um, in the chapter on integral practices that is called holistic transformation, it was called holistic sexuality. It is a very integral approach in which people engage into um, interactive embodied meditations. Meditation practice normally, as you know, has been normally taking place, uh, you know, in solitude or if it's with people with no contact with other people, except some tantric practices and a few others. Mm-hmm. But uh, these are kind of like very mindful, structured practices in which people uh, engage uh, with certain forms of physical contact between their chakras, for example. And I found them uh, tremendously powerful and, and very, very enriching. Phil? Mm-hmm. Jorge, let's... Um Let's get to uh, the the most recent book you um, published called Participation and the Mystery. Um, You have uh, broken some new ground in in your field with uh, your theories uh, having to do with participatory spirituality. Um, our, for the sake of our audience who are not academics. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and for us, yeah. <laughs> and for us, what do you mean by participatory spirituality and how, uh, how is that different from the way we are accustomed to looking at things? Yes. I think it's a question of emphasis, and uh, I'm always very clear that I, um, I'm not into the business of creating any kind of a school or movement, uh, but uh, kind of giving voice to what I feel is like an increasing um, scholarly but also spiritual sensitivity that I see both within and uh, without, outside the traditions, also in, in the greater movements of the spiritual but not religious people in the world. And it's a sensitivity that uh, I think emphasizes the more uh, relational aspects of spirituality and, uh, and also uh, the more embodied aspects of spirituality uh, and also the more creative aspects of spirituality. So um, in a way, some way, a simple way to talk about participation is to talk about co-creation. Co-creation, like, for example, and spirituality that is co-created by all, all human dimensions. Many spiritualities of the past, they emphasize the cultivation of the heart and consciousness, for example, you know, but very often they're regulated or repressed or, or kind of like uh, marginalized in different ways, um, the body or sexuality or instincts. And uh, I believe that today the, the spiritual safest, uh, so to speak, is one that is about embracing all human dimensions in an integrated way. So that's, that's one way in which mm-hmm. I talk about participatory and also participatory in the sense of like uh, co-creation between beings, you know? We are in a radically relational world, you know? 
with other human beings, with non-human beings, animals, plants, perhaps also with non-human uh, entities, uh, if you are open to those possibilities existing in more imaginal realms of reality or subtle dimensions, you know. But that radical relationality, I think it's very important. What co-creating is not just, uh, you know, long cowboy spirituality doing, you know, thing. You're always in relationship. And then lastly, and this is perhaps the most radical and some people have a bit more resistance, is the one that we're also co-creating with, with the mystery itself. And the mystery, I call it, I call the mystery to that kind of uh, creative, generative force of life, reality, or the cosmos, you know. It's a very minimal definition, you know. You can understand that in more naturalistic terms, more supernaturalistic mm -hmm. terms, but it's that creative force, you know, that is behind you know, the, the cosmos, perhaps the Big Bang or the endless universes that the cosmologists talk about now, life, that, that energy, you know. Mm -hmm. So we can co-create with that energy as well. And, uh, and, you know, as many mystics, both Christians and also Kabbalistics and from other traditions, they would say that that is not just us uh, that we are kind of growing and uh, with, you know, spiritual pursuits, but uh, that the divine itself was being affected, you know. The divine itself, the, the mystery itself, is also is also part of this co-creative relationship. Uh, Jorge, uh, you uh, mentioned before uh, San Pedro, and uh, I think you you referred to ayahuasca. Uh, we have had a couple of interviews. One with uh, Anthony Bossas, who's a psychologist at New York University. Oh, I know him. That's know doing him. it. Yeah, wonderful man. We we have an interview with him, and also we recently interviewed Rachel Harris, who wrote a book mm -hmm. uh, on I think it's called. Uh, listening to ayahuasca, and she's also mm -hmm. doing research in that area. And she mentioned to us, if I remember correctly, that there was research being done in Spain, and I think she might have even mentioned Barcelona on yes. ayahuasca. Are you familiar with that research, and do you think it has promise for bringing people uh, greater spirituality? And, and at the same time, uh, should people be very careful with that, because are there dangers involved? Yes, that, that's good. There, there are many aspects to that question, and... Uh, uh, some of the researchers that you are mentioning here in Barcelona, they are among my close friends, Jose Carlos Bozo and other people here in, in some organizations here. So um, on the one hand, I, you know, I respect very much their work, and also I've always, I've always felt very uh, a bit ambiguous about this kind of scientific research, in the sense that um, this scientific research, on the one hand, is bringing uh, the value that brings like social legitimacy, you know, social legitimation to the substances, and at some point they will be able to be used, you know, by by trained psychotherapists and psychiatrists in healing, and that's that's very beneficial because there are substances that they, you know, they they are not addictive, they don't have like secondary like um, side effects, like you know. For example, antidepressives, you know, that can lead to suicide and other things. And actually, they are very effective, you know, in a few sessions, you know. They can, like, really heal tremendously people. That's why the pharmaceutical companies are very, also, viewers towards them, because it's not something that they can create pills and people are going to need pills all the time. <laughs> in uh -huh. a few sessions, it's over. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, on the other hand, also, like, um, there is tensions, because many of these... Um, Substances that are researching with, they are coming from sacred plants, from 
cultivated and held in secret containers um, all around the world, in, in the jungle, uh, in the Amazons, for example, and in many other places, in the Mazatecas with mushrooms and secret saliva. And, um, and, and then the, there is tensions here because these people are, as usual, they don't get, they're not going to get anything. Uh, uh, when some people here are going to be start making a lot of money, you know, when when they, you know, they, they create pills or they create like something here, you know, out of those substances, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm ambiguous. I think that uh, it's a good thing. And at the same time, I think there is some, some potential shadows in the process. Mm-hmm. Jorge, I want to come back for a moment to uh, your participatory spirituality. Um, sure. I'm looking at the uh, back of your book, at the uh, uh, jacket copy, yeah. and uh, it says that uh, you... You're <laughs> You have an original solution to the problem of religious pluralism. So the first first question is, what is the problem with religious pluralism? And what is the original solution that your work uh, points to? Yes. Well, um, the problem has been, it it has not been pluralism itself. It has been that, uh, you know, as you know, there has been, you know, there is, there is probably over over ten thousand independent religions in the world today, according to the statistics. You know, and uh, many many of them, most of them actually, they held they held uh, very conflicting viewpoints about the nature of reality, the nature of the divine, the nature of the origins of things, the nature of the human being. You know, so uh, this leads us to what uh, Hawking, uh, uh, this philosopher, talk about the scandal of plurality. You know, like the concern that if there is so many different visions, you know, uh, spiritual visions of of what the divine is or what the reality is, you know, perhaps none of them is right, right? Mm. And, uh, and and how to what to make it of that, you know? If there is like hundreds and hundreds of cosmologies and cosmovisions, you know, and then the, normally the or typical responses that uh, you are familiar with, you know, are responses that trying to you know inclusive approaches, you know, like you know, Ken Wilber was uh, one of those in the transpersonal movement, you know, uh, in, uh, like, for example, pyramidal approaches in which they were arranged the different insights, the different cosmologies, different kind of uh, steps towards, like, ultimate realization that could be framed in different ways, like non-duality or God or pure consciousness, you know. And uh, other people would say, well, no, this is, like, the, the famous story of the different blind men and the elephant, right? They would mm-hmm. say, well, there's, like... An elephant, and some people would touch the trunk, the, the the ears, you know, and then it would be like this kind of perspective, perspectivism, you know, different perspectives, different snapshots of the same ground of being, you know. The problem with that view, I think, is that um, it projects this very almost naively scientific objectivism to a spiritual reality, as if there is one thing that exists and is predetermined, is objective and can be seen from different places or perspectives, you know. So none of these solutions uh, are, I think, uh, helpful, you know, and also they create a lot of uh, interreligious tensions. Uh, I mean, interreligious tensions, of course, are created by a plethora of other reasons, you know, ethnic, economic, political, but uh, when you believe that uh, you have God on your side, or your tradition is the truest one, it gets easier to be violent or to kill your neighbor. <laughs> and, uh, and, some, and some authors have spoken about this, have written books about this, how the rhetoric of religious exclusivism 
fuels fundamentalism and violence across the world, you know. So basically, um, um, all these maps, you know, um, also you have the esotericist, you know, faces, you know, that, you know, the traditions would be exoteric, diverse, different, you know, in their manifestations. But if you go into the mystical, if you go into the esoteric core, they will become more and more similar. And that's something, there is something there that I think also, if you are a student of mysticism and uh, esotericism, you realize about the tremendous diversity that exists within the mystical course of the traditions themselves, you know. And uh, so, so basically, uh, my approach is more like, uh, it's like to turn, it's like to turn around things. It's like, uh, well, perhaps it's not like there are different rivers going to the same peak of the mountain, you know, or reaching the same ocean. It's like, it's very likely that there are different mountains, there are different peaks. Uh, traditions are going to different places. I like the image of the tree uh, with different branches, branching out in different uh, spiritual, creative directions. And many of the branches can overlap, so there is many points in common within the traditions, but they are offering us different uh, solutions, you know, different solutions and different creative uh, in actions and different creative cosmologies, you know, and uh, and if there is something that is um, where we can find uh, the unity, I would say I would go with what Rumi once said. Rumi once said in a different context. He said, "Well, maybe you have been looking into the branches, what it can on, what it can only be found in the roots." <laughs> and yeah. that's what I would go. Right. I would say like. Uh, it's that creative root, what I call the mystery, that undetermined creative energy, we are coming from there, you know, that's where we can find some kind of sort of unity, you know, like members of a different family, you know, we come from the same root, you know, but then, you know, it's important, I think, to allow this spiritual individuation of different traditions some people, you know, and celebrate it, and then it's not a problem anymore. Right. So, so wait, if, can I follow up on yeah, that, go ahead. So if, if, we, if you acknowledge that there are roots that all the branches have in common, how is that different from the perennial, uh, what's called perennialism, which yes. was basically the same thing about mystical yeah. experience? <clears throat> well, for me, it's different uh, for two reasons. Because, like, uh, I mean, the, the perennialist view, on the one hand, uh, is like saying that those, that unity is at the, at the mystical core, you know, at the, you know, like, uh, you know, different traditions, you know, like, you know, contemplatives from different places, they would just, you know, if they advance enough in their development, in their contemplative mm -hmm. development, they will go to similar places, even though they interpret it differently. I think right. that's a I think that's a distortion. I think the I think you know the space of Brahma or the loving God or sunyata emptiness are not the same experiences, and people in the intermonastic dialogue are corroborating that as well. Um, textually, phenomenologically, I think that's problematic. You know, it's very different when you say you know we're all in contact with a creative energy. And in contact with this energy, you are co-creating in different directions, you know, that are both uh, existential, soteriological, different forms of human liberation from self-centeredness, but also perhaps that are kind of co-creating like different spiritual worlds, you know, uh, subtle dimensions. Mm. Uh, Jorge, is, is there a particular branch on that tree of religions that you uh, are uh, uh, att uh, att attracted to? Is there one you associate with more than the others? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I love so much from so many different traditions, you know. Um, 
I think that um, I, I tend to believe that uh, different traditions historically have kind of cultivated uh, beautifully different human potentials and skills, different competences, you know. So I think that that's part of the richness of our times, of the interreligious dialogue, you know, because they, they all have something to learn or something to offer, you know. Some traditions are fantastic at, you know, contemplative skills. Others are great about uh, spiritual relationship with nature, you know. Others are great about kind of mind-body integration, you know. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that uh, the religions of the future, the spirits of the future, is already starting to happen. We're in the infancy of this kind of multi-traditional spiritualities that are emerging today. But those spiritualities will be kind of like relying on many insights from many different traditions. Personally, uh, I'm a San Pedrista, so uh, I, you know, I work with this plant, this cacti called San Pedro, but um, there is not much of a cosmology there. <laughs> uh, and um, it's just a healing work. It's a healing work and it's beautiful and it has opened my eyes to many things that were possible. Jorge, is, is that the same as ayahuasca? Uh, no, um, um, the San Pedro cactus also grows in Peru and also South America, Bolivia, and also Argentina, other places. There are 14 species, but uh, the one that grows in Peru is uh, one of the particularly visionary types. So it's like a cactus, ayahuasca is a combination of plants from the Amazons. Mm -hmm. San Pedro grows in the Sierras, in the sun. So it's a plant that ayahuasca can take you to heaven, to hell, it's called the vine of the death. Could people at some point you need to face your fears, psychosis, death, you know? It's very valuable, of course, but could be terrifying. Mm. Some people is more of the light and consciousness. It holds you like a gentle grandfather, does not deconstruct your sense of individuality or functional ego, and then your perception opens, your uh, heart opens, your consciousness opens. And one of the phenomena I describes in the I described in the book that for me was mind blowing is that it sometimes the visionary dimension you can see things with your eyes open, but not by yourself. Other people can uh, see the same things that you are seeing. Vortex of wow. energies, uh, entities. So this uh, intersubjective agreement possible uh, in visionary experience with San Pedro that I have never seen with any other any other plant. Mm. Uh, Jorge, Dennis, yes. did you want? Yeah, go ahead. Jorge, um, you're, you're working uh, at uh, a university that attracts a certain kind of student um, who's interested in uh, the spiritual dimension um, for, for the most part and psychology. Um, things are very different now for young people uh, who are spiritual seekers than they were 20, 40, 60 years ago. Yes. Um, uh, for one thing, the, the opportunities for exploration are vast. I mean, everything's available now. And, um, when you, you, you speak of thousands of pathways and traditions and so forth, is it, um, confusing to people who are new to a spiritual path to be exposed to all this? Uh, mm -hmm. whereas, whereas in the past, uh, people came to their spirituality basically through uh, local traditions that yes. and local teachers and you know family traditions and so forth. Um, the, obviously, there would be advantages to having all this freedom of exploration and choice, but mm -hmm. um, it can also, I would imagine, be uh, mind-boggling. So, what yes. what is what is your uh, perception of the current mm -hmm. spiritual scene, especially for young people? 
<laughs> That's a great question. Uh, thanks. Um, it's interesting because um, I, th I think you are right. Uh, it, it it can be confusing. It can be confusing, and that's why all those kind of frameworks that uh, or universalist frameworks that tends to arrange traditions in a particular order, you know, they at first it, it gives some some meaning and some some sense of order to uh, many uh, young students, you know, that they encounter this diversity and it's like, wow, what to believe, you know, there is all these different beliefs, all these different understandings, like, but to make sense of this, you know. Um, and then, of course, there is, um, you know, like, you know, I've been living in the Bay Area of California for my, the last 23 years. And uh, as you know, the tremendous diversity of approaches and spiritualities that coexist there is tremendous, you know. So, on the one hand, one would expect to see more confusion. Um, I don't know, uh, in our students at least, I see that increasingly that they 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 kind of forge their individual path, you know, in conversation with all those traditions. We help them to do that as well, you know. We present in different traditions, not in an indoctrinating manner, but in a respectful way so that they can resonate with one thing or the other, you know. And of course, there is always the concern of also, you know, what has been called the spiritual cafeteria model, you know. Yeah, I pick yeah. up from here, I pick up from there, and it gets like this very superficial thing that people can never go deep, you know, into a particular spirituality. And um, that can happen, but, um, but it's tricky. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen everything. I've seen people, you know, in a very single tradition, very devoted, who, you know, also stay in a very superficial level. And I've seen people who also are more eclectic, and some of them are superficial, and some of them are tremendously profound. Mm -hmm. It really depends also on the level of... Um, Psycho psychological integration, you know, uh, it's, it's not so much the the what is being selected, but the who, uh, who and how is being, uh, who is selecting it and how is being integrated in a person. Mm, very Jorge, good. Uh, thank you so very much for your time today. Are there any final points uh, you'd like to share with our listeners, uh, and, and any uh, a book you have out or or, or coming out soon? that you'd like to let our listeners know about in any way they can follow up on your research and work. Thank you. Uh, well, um, I would like just to say that, uh, you know, the, the book that is available now is the hardcover, but uh, I just learned from my editors at SUNY Press, Institute of University of New York Press, that the paperback edition is going to come out as soon as in January. So I'm very happy about that, to be able to make it available to a greater number of uh, of readers, you know, because as you know, mm -hmm. you know, hardcovers are very difficult <laughs> to access. And, um, and right now, I'm working hard on another book on uh, more on relationships and, and uh, spirituality and sexuality, and uh, I'm kind of like trying to map out uh, the territory that lies beyond uh, monogamy and polyamory, in the same way that the transgender movement did for gender masculine and feminine, what lies beyond that binary? So I'm working hard on that uh, these days. Very well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and I want to, I, I, Phil, Phil, you finish up, and I want to remind our listeners that uh, Jorge, uh, that echoey sound comes from the ancient monastery he has yes. been re residing in uh, for the last 40, no, uh, he, he's, he's in Barcelona. And in a room that uh, but it, it's still miraculous that we can be in uh, Iowa, Los Angeles, and uh, 
Barcelona and have this conversation. And I must say, if anybody hasn't been to Barcelona, please go there. It's one of the yeah, great yeah. cities in the world. I, I, I totally support that thought. And, uh, and uh, yes, it's a beautiful city. You'll not regret it. That's, I agree. And you can even go to ancient monasteries like the one in Montserrat. Yes, uh, with the black, black Madonna. <laughs> well, thanks again, Jorge. It's a delight to talk to you and uh, enjoy your time in Barcelona. And I hope we connect back in California. Thank you so much, both of you. And thanks for your very, very thoughtful questions. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Okay. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.